nothing you can know that isn't known, nothing that you can see that isn't shown, nowhere you can be that isn't where you are meant to be. All you need is love. Love is all you need. Of course, John Lennon and Paul McCartney had a tremendous theology that they were seeking to communicate through that song. That if we were to simply love, love indiscriminately, love blindly, the world's problems would be completely solved. But for Lennon and McCartney, their understanding of love was informed by the culture in which they found themselves in. Culture that many of us have grown accustomed to. A culture that defines love merely in emotional terms. Love is an emotion. But when you take love and reduce it merely to emotional ways, you lose the power, the effect... It's easy to say that all the world needs is more love. As you consider the songs that pepper our landscape, they merely and often only speak of love in these purely emotional terms. And if love is merely an emotion never a verb, then it can easily come and go. Like the ever-changing tide, it can be high and it can be low. This is why so many in our culture, in their marriages, will, will crumble because they'll say things like, I don't love them anymore. But as we read our Bibles, God has so much more for love than mere emotion or emotionalism. Biblical love is not merely an emotional state that one expresses through lyric. It is an objective reality based upon objective truth. Biblical love moves from emotion to intellect ultimately to arrive at a set of beliefs. And this objective truth that one believes in moves us, as we'll see, into action. If we understand love properly, as Christians, we must not take our cue on love from the culture around us. But rather, go to Scripture and then inform the culture based on what the Bible reveals, true love. Of course, only as we look to the cross of Christ will we find a true and accurate picture of love, a picture that goes beyond emotion to to, to action, to a costly sacrifice where true love is put on display for all to see. The story we find ourselves studying over the last few weeks is a story of love. Not of Ruth's love for Boaz or Ruth's love for Naomi or Naomi's love for Ruth. 
nor even Boaz's uh, affection and love for both Naomi and Ruth, but rather is a story about God's love of a people who are unlovable. A people who, if we were in control, we would have disowned many, many years earlier. Just to catch you up on where we've been, we've been considering this very small, all by insignificant, it seems, story in the Old Testament. I mean, just to put a perspective on it, this story historically took place 4,000 years ago. And we find many strange things, even in our text this morning, that are weird, awkward, and foreign to us. The book of Ruth tells the story of a young widowed woman named Ruth. But as I argued several weeks ago, I think the story is more about Naomi than it really is about Ruth. And of course, even more than that, it's a story about God. Ruth was an outsider. She was not an Israelite. She was from Moab. And the Moabite people were despised people. The Israelites could not stand them. And the Moabites couldn't stand Israel. They were, if you will, mortal enemies to one another. Uh, Because of their long history, they had often had conflicts, which then would become ingrained in the family stories that were told about how, for example, when the Israelites were fleeing captivity and arriving after their long and arduous 40-year journey through the wilderness, they were tired, they were wore out, and they were ready to rest in the promised land. And the only people that separated them from their rest was the Moabites. And the Moabite people said, you cannot come through our country lest you come and take our land. And the Israelites were like, we don't want your land. We don't, we don't care about your land. God has given us another land. That we, no, you, you have to go a little bit further in your journey. It was things like this that would cause most Israelites to turn their nose up at someone from Moab. And Ruth finds herself as an outcast impoverished because her husband has died. She's a widow, and she has joined in with her mother-in-law, Naomi. As these two struggle to provide for themselves in this small agricultural town called Bethlehem. But as we've seen throughout our study of this, though they were at death's door, God in His grace was still working. God's hand was upon His covenant people. He was working to orchestrate a great story of redemption. Where He would redeem a people here that were impoverished and and without anything. God was working. And this young immigrant, as we'll see this morning, is rescued by a redeemer named Boaz, a family member. And through this story, we're reminded that God is a God who keeps His promises to His people. It was a time of rampant wickedness. The book of Judges tells us that there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It was a deplorable time. But in the midst of darkness, there was a glimmer of hope beginning to shine 
And God was about to tell one of the greatest stories of redemption, and he would use this obscure, widowed immigrant from Moab to bring about the great king of Israel, King David. As we consider this story this morning, we are reminded that our time will be focused on God's covenant-keeping love. His loving kindness to those who take refuge under His wings. In short, those who learn to trust the sovereignty of God will be blessed by steadfast love. I invite you to turn to Ruth chapter 3. It's found on page 223 in the Pew Bibles provided in front of you. Let me encourage you to open one of those if you do not have a copy of God's Word. I have not much to say, but I pray that this, this word from God, this is God's inspired, infallible, inerrant word, will speak to us this morning. Ruth chapter 3. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, with whose women, young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place to where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what you are to do. And she replied, all that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and was, his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a Redeemer. Yet, there is a Redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning, if he will redeem you good, let him do it. But if he will not redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize her. And he said, let it not be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you were wearing and hold it out. So she held it out, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went to the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, this six, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest but we'll settle the matter today. My friend, as we consider this story this morning, with all of its strange twists and turns and uncovering of feet and 
middle-of-the-night rendezvous at the grain heap, we are reminded in this story as we step back from it that God steadfastly loves His covenant people. That God's love is displayed through these characters. And the purpose of our time this morning is to teach us to love the way God loves. As the story unfolds, we get a fingerprint impressed upon us of God's own love for His covenant people. Even in the provisions we see provided in the law, God had prepared His people for days like these. God's covenant-keeping love is displayed through His covenant-keeping people. This is, this is the point that this story is meant to communicate. And that through our acts of kindness or display of covenant love, God's people displays love towards an unlikely people. Ruth was undeserving of the kind of kindness that she had come under. But it is a reminder that God's love is for people who do not deserve it. And as you and I display the love of God, we do so for His glory. So this morning, if you take notes, I want to look at three aspects of God's love that's displayed here. Number one, we see a display of God's selfless love in verses 1 through 5. In verses 1 through 5, we see Naomi and Ruth expressing a, a selfless love toward one another that is an outworking expression of God's selfless love for His people. Then in verses 6 through 13, we will see a display of God's sacrificial love, a costly love. This will literally cost Ruth and Boaz significantly. And we see both of them sacrificing as a display of God's love. And finally, we see that God's love is sincere. God's love is not fickle. Neither was Boaz's love. Boaz had a sincere love and it's displayed in the actions that he takes in the text. Well, let's walk through the story a bit and, and get ourselves oriented because it is so far from us, uh, we have to journey a few thousand years to understand exactly what is going on. There, there is some mystery to this passage, of course, so we are, we're so far from it. There is some unknown practices here that, that we'll try to sort through a bit. Regardless, what we see here right out of the gate in verse 1 is that Naomi has concocted a plan in order to provide rest for Ruth. And the word that's used there in the Hebrew text for rest is that of per perpetual protection and provision. Just as we consider the nation of Israel resting in the promised land, what does that mean? It doesn't mean that they're, they, you know, they're sitting back in their easy chairs and uh, you know, watching TV. No, rather, they were coming under the provision and protection of God. They were relying on Him. And, and Naomi here in our text says that she has a plan for which she will provide rest for Ruth. And she reveals here in verses 1 and 2 the sort of unfolding plan. She identifies Boaz. And of course, we've understood that, that Boaz is going to play a very instrumental part in this whole unfolding narrative. We've seen it in chapter 2 as 
Ruth has gone out to glean from the fields there among Boaz's servants. Boaz is already beginning to provide for them in extraordinary ways. We, we saw last week at the end of the harvest time how Boaz invited Ruth to his own table and he lavished upon her an abundance of food and sent her home with her, her bags overflowing with grain, an abundance of material and resources that they could provide and live on. And the plan was that as Boaz was finishing the barley harvest, Ruth would go down and propose to Boaz. Even that in and of itself is somewhat strange in a culture that often sees a male proposing to a wife. But regardless of the the order of the thing, we see that the plan is that ultimately Boaz will purchase the land of Elimelech and that he will marry Boaz and perpetuate the name of her dead son, Malon. At the heart of Naomi's plan was the Leverite marriage. And one of the things I want you to see in this wonderful unfolding story is that our God sovereignly planned for this to be the means by which He would rescue His people. So imagine the foresight in the law that this provision was even there. You can see a sense of which God was unworking His story of redemption years earlier. Hundreds of years earlier. In Deuteronomy chapter 25, provisions are met that if an Israelite man died without producing an heir, a relative was to marry his widow so that their first son could bear the name of the deceased man. In this case, Ruth and Boaz's first son would be named after Elimelech's family. Of course, Boaz is, as we'll find out, a part of Elimelech's family. And this nearest relative could refuse, but this was considered shameful. As we'll see next week, as the nearer uh, Redeemer does refuse. Naomi here in our text realizes that under this law, Boaz could marry Ruth and provide for her daughter-in-law and continue her husband Elimelech's name. This came at a great cost. Naomi could have done a whole host of things. Ruth could have, of course, continued to to just glean in the field. She didn't have to participate in this plan. But we see in both of them a costliness, a selfless love. Ruth stayed close to Naomi so that she could provide for her. She could have returned to her mother and father, but she remained there with Naomi. They're not concerned about their own well-being, but that of the other. Naomi here looks to provide a permanent home for Ruth. And Ruth is motivated by her love for Naomi, which is demonstrated in her willingness to not only go along with the plan, but to marry Boaz, who as we'll find out is much older than she is. Even in her choice to pursue pursue Boaz as an older man, she doesn't go after vanity, but rather what's best for her family. 
She doesn't go about what would work best for her. I mean, just consider for a moment the, the, case, the case before us. Her husband has already died. She's gone 10 years without having a child. And now she's going to marry a man much older than her who is going to die soon as well. All of this was fraught with tremendous risk for Ruth and Naomi. And we see that our God is being displayed, His love is being displayed by their loyalty to one another. By their loyalty to the covenant community. And through that we see God is displaying. Brothers and sisters, we need to understand that it is God's people who are to display to the nations His character. And this is exactly what Ruth and Naomi and Boaz are doing. Of course, our God demonstrates His own selfless love for us in giving up His own Son for our redemption. Where here, Ruth, it it cost her her future and her plans. For God, it cost His Son. As we heard earlier in in John 3.16, that God loved the world in this way. In what way? How do we see God's love? Where do we see it displayed? In the giving of His one and only Son. God selflessly gave up His greatest treasure for a people who did not love Him. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. As John Calvin helpfully writes, the more extraordinary the discoveries which have reached of us of the Redeemer's kindness, the more strongly are we bound to His service. Friend, the more you understand the selfless love of God in Christ, the more you want to be in the service of love. Brothers and sisters, we are bound to display God's selfless love by avoiding selfishness and cultivating a genuine desire to serve others and not be served. Friend, if your personal preferences are all you are concerned with, then you cannot be selfless in your love for others. It's impossible. If it's all about you, then it can never be about anyone else. If you think life, relationships, and especially this local church is all about meeting your felt needs, friend, then you can never be selfless in your love toward others. But if your motivation is to help others, as we see both in Naomi and Ruth, to see their needs met, then you are on the right road. Friend, regularly pray that you would see yourself as a producer and not as a consumer. One of the great dangers of church is that the church is filled with consumers. Men and women who gather to eat up everyone else's spiritual fruit. We must pray against that. We must guard against that by cultivating the fruit of the Spirit in our life so that we can feed others. Have your eye towards selfless love in the lives of those around you. And in doing so, you participate in the display of God's selfless love through His covenant people. But we see also in verses 6-13 through a display of God's sacrificial love. 
It's selfless and sacrificial. In verses 6 through 9, we see that Ruth goes along with Naomi's plan and goes down to the threshing floor. Now, for many of us who don't particularly participate in this type of agriculture, what's going on here? Well, at the end of a harvest, what they would do is they would wait until the evening breeze began to blow. And as this cool breeze began to blow, they would take the uh, wheat or the barley that they had harvested and throw it up in the air. And as they churned it up, what would happen is, is the chaff and the, 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 the waste would begin to kind of blow away in that cool breeze, and the heads of the grain would fall to the ground, and they would scoop them up and harvest them. And as Boaz is going about this work, it's a tiring work, but we, one of the things, as, as you might know, if you participate in agriculture, there is something wonderful about harvest season, right? Because at the harvest season is when you get to see the prophets. Was this a good year or a bad year? And the unfolding narrative here, remember there was a famine in the land many years earlier, but God had begun to bless his people again, and you see this abundance of grain being produced by Boaz and his family. God was blessing his servant. Even so much that he was generously giving it away rather than storing it away for himself. And so Ruth goes down following this particular plan. And scholars don't quite understand what exactly is going on with her going down and uncovering his feet and and sitting and sleeping at his feet. But there's a few things we do know. Number one is there's nothing nefarious going on here. Nothing of impropriety happening in this scene. None of the language that is used here is to lead the reader to understand that there's something inappropriate going on among Ruth and Boaz. This is completely above board and and honorable. This was their custom. The uncovering of his feet perhaps was a way to awaken him. Imagine you're, you're outside sleeping, covered, nestled, and that cool breeze that was used to winnow the the grain, begins to blow across your feet as they are uncovered. This would have startled Boaz and it would awaken him. And as one is awakened and finds a young woman there, he's startled all the more. But he understands what she is doing. She here is proposing to him and saying and asking, will you in fact buy my dead husband's land? Will you marry me and perpetuate his name? Now this, of course, will come at a great cost to Boaz. If Boaz participates in the Leverite marriage, Boaz's name ceases to exist. For some of you, your last name name is very important to you. It communicates something about you, about your heritage, about your family's importance. You write your last name with great pride when you scribble it down. I am this. For you, it brings about a a tremendous memory of the, the kind of courage or fortitude or goodness of your family. And no doubt for Boaz, it would have done the same. But if Boaz is to participate in this redemptive work, well, then Boaz would cease to be Boaz. His name would stop there. 
and the rest of his life he would perpetuate the name of another man. Moreover, Boaz demonstrates tremendous sacrifice in his willingness to be a provider and protector that Ruth needs. This, of course, would have come at a tremendous cost to him, not only of purchasing the land, but also of needing to provide now for Ruth and Naomi, a a particular expense that he himself did not currently have. Furthermore, he demonstrates his covenant faithfulness to the Lord through his willingness to go about with the plan. Notice even as Boaz interchanges with Ruth here. So for example, look there at verse 8. At midnight, a man was star- the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman laid his feet. Who are you? He says. I'm Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Notice his response there in verse 10. He begins with a prayer. He prays for her. The Lord bless you, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. What was the last kindness? Well, this invitation to marriage. What was the first kindness? Well, it was the fact that she had left her home and the protection and provision of her family in order to come and live with him. Both Ruth and Boaz demonstrate covenant-keeping love. This sacrificial love. It's on display here among them, isn't it? And Boaz's willingness to go about this particular plan and Ruth's willingness to submit herself to this plan reminds us that God's people embody sacrificial love. In Ephesians 1, for example, Ephesians chapter 5 rather, in verses verse 1 and 2, the Apostle Paul calls the church to emulate God's character of love in everyday life. He says, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Christ made atonement, meaning he satisfied God's just wrath by becoming the sacrificial lamb. His life for our life. This was the great exchange that you and I have enjoyed in the gospel. We become right with God because Christ laid down His life for us. This is the greatest display of love you and I will ever see. No one forced Him to it. The Apostle Paul says that He Himself gave His life for us. What a love. What a cost. Brothers and sisters, we ought to see that God's people ought to embody this love that is displayed through the gospel. Of all the people in all the world, who more than us should display love sacrificially? We are reminded that biblical love is costly love. Forgiveness is costly It's costly to forgive others, isn't it? To reconcile is costly. Hospitality is costly. Discipling a brother is costly. You might spend countless years investing in someone's life only to see them abandon the faith. 
Think about Judas. Jesus invested three years in Judas' life, all only to see him betray him and commit suicide. Brothers and sisters, we ought to pray regularly for the spiritual needs of those around us. One of the ways that we can sacrifice is by providing for the needs of those around us, physically and spiritually. Praying for one another. We've provided a tremendous tool in the membership directory. If you just praying through the directory, praying for one another, getting to know one another in that way. Exhorting one another to repentance. Texting encouraging words to one another. Caring for need. Weeping with those who weep and rejoicing with those who rejoice. Friend, if your so-called love costs you nothing, it is not biblical love. Biblical love is sacrificial. It's costly, and it displays God's character. Lastly, and very quickly, we see in verses 14 through 18, as uh, the story unfolds, Boaz tells her to, to stay here. Now, why does he tell her to stay, even though there's a Redeemer that he has to go check on? What we see here displayed in Boaz's character his loyalty to her and her willingness to protect her honor. Number one, we see that Boaz is above reproach. He himself could have easily redeemed it. He could have said, yeah, Ruth, I will buy uh, Elimelech's land and I will marry you. But he was a man of integrity. He was a man of sincerity. And he told her there at the end that says, there is a, verse 12, there is a redeemer nearer than I, and you stay here, and tomorrow morning I will get up and I will resolve this matter. Now it's important for us to understand in the unfolding narrative here that this is a sincere love. He's like, I'm going to take care of this. Whether I myself do it or this other man does it, at the end of tomorrow you will be redeemed, Ruth. What a tremendous love that he is displaying for this woman, this outsider, this outcast. More than that, he tells her to stay. Now, for you and I, we're thinking, well, this is kind of quite inappropriate, that this young woman stays there with him. Now, of course, we require us to go to the book of Judges to see exactly why Boaz is saying this, but we'll leave that for your own reading. Needless to say, it would have not been safe for a young woman to be walking the streets of Bethlehem that time of night, lest she be assaulted by another man. And so he provides protection for her in allowing her to stay there. More than that, we see then in verses 14 and following that he protects her honor by making sure that no one recognizes her when she leaves. Lest the rumors begin to spread around town that Ruth has been frequenting the threshing floor with Boaz. Secondly, she is provided this bag of grain so that when she walks through town and people say, Ruth, where you been? What you been up to? She'll say, I have been with Boaz and he's given me this grain. The grain functions not only as provision, but a foretaste of the kind of protection and provision that Boaz will provide for her. More than that, we see in Naomi's own words there in verse 19, wait, my daughter, until you learn about how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. 
sincerity. He wants, he, he's he's going to take care of this today. He demonstrates in sincere love and his loyalty to the Lord. When he says he loves the Lord, he means it. Furthermore, his urgency is to display as he goes about his, his business, demonstrates his sincerity to Ruth and his loyalty to her. He will settle this matter. He is dedicated to her and to the Father. He protects her from any impropriety and makes sure that she leaves in a place of honor and not disrepute. It is a reminder to us of our own sincere love. This word sincere shows up all throughout our Bibles that that our love is to be sincere. This is what the, the Apostle Peter said earlier in 1 Peter Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Friend, I wonder, is your love fickle or is it sincere? Is your love a loyal love? Or is your love, ir- is your love rather revocable? Is your love reciprocal? In other words, I'll love you if you love me back. Brothers and sisters, how terrible that would be. If we only love those people who are lovable, there would be no one to love. For truly no one is worthy of love. Not ourselves, not anyone else. We must cultivate among us a loyal love to one another, a love that that seeks the best and the worst. Here's the truth I want you to leave with. If there is anyone in this congregation that you cannot love, so if there's anyone that is a member of this church whom you cannot love, then the problem is with you and not them. The problem is in your heart. Brothers and sisters, we must go beyond mere platitudes. Man, I love you. To a genuine sacrificial love that seeks to be sincere in all its ways. Without sincerity, our words are meaningless. And if our words are meaningless, then we have no power to change lives of the gospel. God's love is sincere, it is loyal, it is steadfast. As God's people live out their faith through obedience to His Word as displayed in these characters, a people who obeyed the Word of God, we see His love put on display. As you and I submit ourselves to the Word of God and seeking to live it out in obedience, then God's love is displayed. His love that is selfless. A love that is sacrificial. A love that demonstrates itself to be sincere. A loyal love. While we often face trial and tribulation, suffering and sadness, we should never doubt the sincerity of God's love for us. In the midst of profound wickedness, injustice, and moral chaos, let us, brothers and sisters, continue to entrust ourselves to our God's love for us in Christ. As Corey Ten Boom urges us, never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. Let's pray. Father, help us, we pray, to be a people who love the way you love. 
It is difficult. It is challenging, but we know that we can through the power of the Holy Spirit in us. May we do it for your glory and for our eternal good in Christ's name. Amen.